Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author Joe Nick Potosky returns to tell Nate about his book, Austin to ATX, the hippies, pickers, slackers, and geeks who transformed the capital of Texas. In this two-hour special episode, Joe Nick tells Nate how musicians like Doug Somm, Willie Nelson, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and the Butthole Surfers kicked off the transformation that turned a sleepy college down into ATX, the home of Austin City Limits and South by Southwest. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Joe Nick Potosky, the author of Austin to ATX, the hippies, pickers, slackers, and geeks who transformed the capital of Texas. Joe Nick, welcome. Hi, Nate. How you doing? Doing well. Glad to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks. Cool. So tell us about the book. How did you pick this topic? Oh, you know, after uh, doing several books and, and a lot of my uh, biographies that I did, Willie Nelson, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Selena, were all, and, and actually the Dallas Cowboys as well were all about places. Place had a, a really kind of determined the, the central figure of the stories I was telling. But I wanted to tell the story about the place that shaped me. And uh, it's basically, you know, the, my, my history with Austin is getting to witness the rise of whatever Austin is today is the world capital of all things alternative. And certainly all that Austin is today in 2020 isn't really informed by uh, all these, these 
outsider events that go back to the, you know, even to the late 1960s, but it really is pegged to music. It starts with music as kind of the creative force that led all the other creative forces that makes Austin what it is today. And you've got a quote in here that you said, Austin didn't have an identity or a soul until the musicians arrived. Tell us a little bit about that, because Austin had been the state capital of Texas and the home of the University of Texas for quite a long time before the musicians arrived. Sure. And, and look, there were, there were always musicians around. I mean, this is part of the Austin stories. Music, uh, going back to its founding, was, was part of the entertainment, uh, amusement uh, and it was something that everybody did. And it just seems like that uh, that element kind of reared its head up starting in the 1960s into the 70s in, in a way that it really uh, drove the artistic scene. Austin was, was the state capital, but it really had no reason to exist other than it was a pretty spot. And it's where the second president of the Republic of Texas happened to kill a buffalo. Maribel Lamar was the second president of the Republic of Texas. And before he became president, he was on a hunting expedition and shot a buffalo in what was known as the village of Waterloo. And he declared this is, after he shot the buffalo, this should be the seat of empire. You gotta understand, Maribel Lamar was a poet as well as a, a famous Indian exterminator. But he saw nothing but aesthetic beauty for Austin and the fact that uh, there was no reason for Austin to be founded or be a seat of empire, much less the capital of a republic, uh, much less the capital of the state of Texas when it joined the Union in 1848. Uh, the river that Austin was founded on, the Colorado River, uh, isn't navigable. Um, there was no reason for it. And Austin was on the edge of Comanche, hostile Comanche territory. This was not a good place to found uh, a capital. But anyhow, Lamar persisted and this became the capital. And, you know, throughout all the way up until 1970, Austin was basically the state capital and the home of the uh, state university, uh, which was established in the late 1800s. And so the economy was uh, very small. It was tied to state government and state university business. Uh, and Austin was one-tenth the size it is today back in 1970. The metro population in 1970 was 267,000 people. Today, it's over 2 million people. So this period since 1970 is, this, is marked by explosive growth, and it really is the ascendance of Austin into a global city of, of you know, international importance and basically the world capital of all things alternative. And the way I see the Austin of today is it is all tied back into the Austin of 1970 when the creative uh, engine that powered the artistic community was music. Music was made going back to the beginning of Austin. It was an entertainment and an amusement, and it was something that everybody did. It was just, you know, it was a, a pastime. And what happened in 1970 was this period that it was kind of like the tipping point. Up until then, if you were a creative and you were in Austin, it was kind of like if you went from to the University of Texas and you graduated, you went somewhere else to seek your fortune. Austin, unless you got a job with the state, 
or or with the university, there was this wasn't a great place to uh, you know start a career. But what it was was a great place to hang and relax and enjoy yourself. Prettiest part of Texas, um, you know, the most aesthetic beauty. Mirabeau Lamar uh, really could see well what was going on. So all these things kind of conspired uh, that by 1970 there was there was this change that even the hippies, if you were an ambitious hippie in the 1960s. You left because there was greener pastures and certainly in a place called San Francisco in California, maybe to a lesser extent in New York, but uh, any aspiring hippies that had any ideas left. And that was the case of, of the creatives in the 1960s, including the underground cartoonist and poster artist Gilbert Shelton, the creator of the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers and Wonder Warthog. I mean, he was the pioneer of underground comics. Um, and musicians. You had people like Pal St. John and uh, taking his friend Janis Joplin to San Francisco to, to play music there because in Austin there wasn't much going on. You had a few clubs, a handful of clubs, and um, you didn't have much else. You didn't have a concert scene. You didn't have, there was no business of music. It was, Austin was a wonderful, sleepy little town. It was a great place to be creative and just kind of all your muse, but it wasn't a place to get ahead. And starting in 1970, what happened is the hippie migration to San Francisco stopped. And people started moving into Austin rather than leaving Austin. And what started then built upon itself, and it began with music, and, and music basically conspired to uh, build other creative communities like the movie and film community, um, um, the uh, the food community. We have Whole Foods Market started in Austin. Uh, the biggest under, uh, organic grocer in the world started in Austin. It was an Austin idea. So all these ideas were, were beginning to take shape in the 1970s and become something. But in the 60s, if you were good, you had talent, you left. Um, and it wasn't just that you left. You tell some stories about people literally being run out of town. Well, famously, the uh, Don Hyde, who was uh, um, part of this, what I would describe as, you know, where uh, San Francisco and, and the counterculture, counterculture in California was basically birthed by LSD. In Austin, it was peyote, which was a cactus that grew, that grows in South Texas. And uh, it was sold as a decorative plant. But in the early 1960s, a lot, a lot of the hippies at the university, uh, including Jim Franklin, who created famously the armadillo, um, it became the, the symbol of the armadillo world headquarters. And this guy, Don Hyde, uh, were all experimenting with peyote. And Which was legal at the time. Uh, exported peyote to San Francisco in the mid-60s, took peyote out to San Francisco once, once the hippies figured out how to make mescaline out of peyote and traded it for LSD. And Don Hyde brought back the idea of the dance hall of San Francisco that was going on in San Francisco. Dance halls like the Avalon Ballroom and the Fillmore Ballroom, uh, which in which psychedelic music was birthed. And, you know, the audience and often the entertainers were all dropping acid. Well, you know, Don brought that idea back to Austin and established the Vulcan Gas Company. But even then, I mean, like 
the very first psychedelic band on earth. It's recognized as the the creators of psychedelic music started in Austin, the 13th floor elevators, and they played Austin clubs. They recorded in Houston, but like anyone else who was different in Austin at that time, there wasn't critical mass. So the elevators went to San Francisco where they could play at the Avalon Ballroom and not get asked. And similarly, I mean, the Vulcan did not last. By uh, early 1970, it, it shuttered. And in fact, the Vice Squad told Don Hyde, he started the Vulcan Gas Company, you've got 24 hours to get out of town. We don't know what charge we're going to bring, but we're going to get you if you don't leave. Because they got tired of the hippie menace in downtown Austin uh, that was a Vulcan Gas Company. And it was a hippie menace because... Many hippies have told me and, and talked about it, and it was common knowledge. If you wanted to score acid back in the, you know, ni- 1965 to 1970, probably the most dependable place in Texas was to go to the Vulcan Gas Company, and you could score. So Don got ran, ran out. He was the last hippie to get run out of Austin in 1970. And it was just a time when hippies quit leaving Austin voluntarily and a few started drifting in. And, and famously, by 1972, when Doug Somm, uh, a musician who had, was from San, San Antonio, had pop music hits in the 60s with his band, the Sir Douglas Quintet, got pop for pot, found refuge in San, in San Francisco. Well, Doug Somm, by 1971, got tired of San Francisco. He moved back to San, San Antonio briefly, but because he was a long hair, even though he wore cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, uh, Rednecks didn't like that. So he got the shit beat out of him, and he quickly discovered Austin was that one place in Texas where you wouldn't get hassled, you wouldn't get beat up. And uh, better weather than San Francisco, prettier women, uh, cheaper pot. It was like a mini San Francisco. And Doug moving to Austin about the same time this old country music uh, uh, performer whose house had burned down in Nashville Christmas Eve of 1970 it took him about a year and a half to discover Austin but Willie Nelson drifted into Austin he was an old he was a washed up country music Nashville entertainer and Doug and Willie being in Austin as well as the scene of young folkies making Music and there's always been a folk music scene in Austin. Uh, in the '60s, it was it centered around the student union at the University of Texas and a place called the Ghetto, a little kind of apartment complex where all these hippies lived, and a place uh, uh, up north on North Lamar, Kenneth Threadgill's gas station, Threadgill's. And it was also a beer joint, and he would host hoot nannies. He hosted hoot nannies uh, for the hippies including people like Janis Joplin. This is really where she developed her singing style. And as long as Kenneth got to uh, get out from behind the bar and yodel like Jimmy Rogers for a couple of times a night, everybody was happy. So really, it was a small scene. But starting in the early 70s, Oakies started putting on cowboy hats and drifting into Austin. And I mean, most famously, before Willie and Doug arrived, Jerry Jeff Walker and the Los Gonzo bands were roaring and kind of setting this whole new sound, uh, laying down a sound as a foundation. Uh, call it country rock, progressive country, 
redneck rock, but it's mixing up rock and roll and folk elements uh, with country music. And so you had Jerry Jeff Walker doing this kind of wild ass folk music. Jerry Jeff had been a, a folky in New York and in Houston for a while. And he was joined by a couple other uh, Texas folkies who had been working in Houston, which at the time had been in the 60s was, was the action. But uh, famously, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt drifted to Austin. Um, Austin became a cool place for all these musicians to make their music. No one thought they were going to get rich. No one was in Austin to make it, but it was a great place to work out your ideas. So Jerry Jeff Walker becomes this thing, along with this flaxen-haired folky from Dallas who'd been writing songs for Screen Gems out in L.A., a guy named Michael Murphy, and uh, a, a guy also from Dallas, out of the folk scene in Dallas, uh, from Highland Park, a rich boy, son of a banker, who kind of reinvented himself, Willis Allen Ramsey. And this was a big deal. There was critical mass in Austin all of a sudden. So Willie and Doug were kind of these outsiders that had tapped into this. It was already a hub and scene. And Willie and Doug were conveniently in Austin about the same time in 1972 that Jerry Wexler shows up, the record producer, uh, with a brand new label, Atlantic, uh, which is where he works as an A&R talent scout and an executive discovering, you know, everyone from uh, Sam and Dave, Aretha Franklin to Professor Longhair. Uh, Jerry was this great R&B legend. And Atlantic Records had given him a new custom label in Nashville. And Jerry was going to do country music. And Jerry's first two signings were not Nashville artists. They were Doug Song, this guy in Austin that no one in Nashville had ever heard of. And then this washed up Nashville guy who he'd made over 10 albums for Chet Atkins and RCA in Nashville and couldn't get across. And now Jerry Wexler's going to sign him. So this is all crazy. But Wexler's <laughs> showing up signing Doug and Willie and all these other artists kind of blowing up and bubbling up, put Austin on the map. And let's hear a little bit of, of Doug Psalm uh, doing Nuevo Laredo from an early edition of Austin City Limits. Doug Psalm doing a mix of Tex-Mex and country and rock and roll, uh, Nuevo Laredo on Austin City Limits. And we'll get to how they started, how Austin City Limits started up in just a second. But I want to talk about Armadillo World Headquarters for a little bit, because by the time Doug and Willie get there, there's a big venue. And it's not just local acts that are playing there, but national acts. Uh, Freddie King. And- Less than three months after the Vulcan Gas Company shuts down because they lost their lease. No one's showing up, and the club had been sold and resold. Um, Eddie Wilson, uh, this beer lobbyist who had worked for as a beer lobbyist, a big old Lex Marine, uh, decided he was going to manage the house band at the Vulcan Gas Company. She was headbands. And all of a sudden, his band that he was managing lost their gig. So he needed to find a new place. 
And one night he was taking a leak outside of a club in South Austin, and he happened to spot this building. He went to investigate, and it was this empty armory. And, you know, Eddie took the initiative to go find out who owned the building, um, you know, and it was empty. It had been empty. And basically with about 20 friends of his and very little money, I think he got $1,000 from Spencer Perskin of Sheba's Headband because they just signed a deal with Capitol Records. And Bud Shrake, the writer, uh, who had just moved to Austin by choice, he was writing for Sports Illustrated at the time, gave Eddie $1,000. And and these friends of, and, and Eddie basically opened up a concert hall called the Armadillo World Headquarters in, in August of 1970. And there was no business plan. <laughs> there was no money. Uh there was no real vision other than wouldn't it be cool to start a place that's basically, um, you know, place for music. And what the Armadillo became in a very short amount of time was the community center for hippies in Texas. There was an adjacent beer garden where hippies could hang out all the time and drink cheap beer and there was live music there. There were house bands uh, inside the Armadillo, which, by the way, was unair-conditioned. And it was pretty crashed out. It was an empty uh, old National Guard armory. But what the Armadillo did that no one else was doing was bring in music. And it wasn't just local bands, but touring acts. And I noticed them in 1971. I was a disc jockey up in the, uh, working at a freeform radio station in Dallas-Fort Worth. And I started noticing that, you know, bands that weren't playing Dallas and Fort Worth or Houston were playing Austin and bands that I liked, like like the Flying Burrito Brothers and Captain Beefheart and his magic band, Rod Coover, I mean, all these cool music acts were going to Austin. So I drove down and investigated. I met Jim Franklin and Eddie Wilson in early 1971 and saw what they were doing and moved to Austin two years later in 1973. But I got to say that uh, when I look at that, the Armadillo lasted until 1980. That's where I got my music education. It was college. Uh, it was better than college. It was fun. And it was this huge venue. And, you know, the Armadillo stood out. It, can, it had a capacity of about 1,500 people. They could sit on the floor, festival-style seating. But, again, they brought in acts early on that no one else was bringing in. Um, in its early years, it was called the house that Freddie King built. Freddie King was, you know, Texas blues man, blues guitarist. And he was playing Chitlin Circuit Clubs, but he wasn't playing for white folks much. And for some reason, Austin, the Armadillo, and Freddie King became, you know, best friends. And 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 he was one of the first acts to regularly play the joint and pack it out. In 1972, Willie Nelson famously played the Armadillo, and the hippies lied down with the rednecks and discovered they had a common groove. They loved music. They loved beer. And and even the rednecks discovered they kind of like weed. And and Willie kind of like, you know, announced, formalized this synthesis of country, rock and roll, folk, all these different sounds together. And, of course, with Doug Soms' presence, Doug Soms flipped out when he moved to Austin because not only was the armadillo to play with, but he found that basically his home base was a smaller, hipper version of the armadillo out west of town called Silk Creek Saloon. And and that was a place where road acts would play, roadhouse acts. I mean, it wasn't just Doug, which it was Doug's club because Doug had a, his house was like less than 100 yards away. And he could play 
Show Creek anytime and play any kind of music. So he could play with Freedom the Fire Dogs and play stone country music, or he could bring up his his horn friends from San Antonio and play, uh, you know, Chicago rhythm and blues. Uh, he he brought in Freddie Fender out of retirement to show folks what Tex-Mex music was all about. Uh, introduced, you know, Austin in the world to Flaco Jimenez. Uh, Doug was basically creating what we now call Americana music. He was this very multi-talented guy, sat on the knee of, of Hank Williams growing up in San Antonio, watched T-Bone Walker play electric blues guitar. He got direct transmission. And all of a sudden, all the kind of roots music he loved, he could play in Austin. This is the birth of Americana music because it wasn't just Doug by the time, you know, Doug started playing it so great. Um, Asleep at the Wheel, this this, wet, this swing band that's out in California after forming in the East Coast, comes and discovers this older audience that keeps telling them, you're playing our music. You're playing Bob Will's Western swing music. So Asleep at the Wheel's no dummies. They move to Austin because this is where the action was. And they found not only a younger audience, but an older audience. So there's all these elements, these all these different, you know, sounds and grooves that are being mixed up. And it's all happening in Austin. You you have the armadillo as kind of the touchstone for you want to see any any band work a damn, this is where you go. And, you know, it's not just Willie, it's not just Freddie King, it's like Frank Zappa discovers this audience like he didn't know existed before. So like, you know, whatever Frank Zappa's weird mother invention music was, Austin became that. Uh, and and it was just, you know, all these different acts found their home here. Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen, this kind of neo-boogie swing band that played 40s and 50s music, became so big. I mean, they recorded their live album at the Armadillo, and the crowd sounds from that live recording were so over the top that other acts borrowed the audio of the crowd yelling because you couldn't invent audiences like this. Austin <laughs> audiences were enthusiastic and glad to see you. So and it's all these elements come together. And, and then you can't discount the fact that Armadillo, unlike any other place outside of San Francisco, had its own stable of poster artists who created their own distinctive kind of poster art. Much like in the 60s, psychedelic poster art defined San Francisco in the music scene. You had these poster artists at the Armadillo that basically gave the music scene a look and helped put Austin on, on the map as well as a radio station called Coke FM, which played a musical format, I guess we call it progressive country, uh, super roper radio, but they played music that reflected what was going on in Austin. You would hear Ernest Tubb and his Texas Troubadours next to the Rolling Stones, next to Creedence Clearwater Revival and Chris Christopherson. Willie Nelson did the the uh, uh, did kind of the promos. He, he sang Mr. Record Man, but he, he sang I was driving where we kept him turned on. Yeah. So, moment that he brought up one night uh, uh, his friend Chris Christopherson who at the time was the biggest act in country music 
and Chris Christopherson started hanging out in Austin because it's a lot more cooler. It's cooler than Nashville. So you had all these elements coming together. And, and basically, you know, again, by the end of, of the 70s, when the Armadillo closes, every musical tribe on earth just about has a community in Austin. And Austin is a music town. It's actually a lot cooler music town than than L.A. or or Nashville or New York because there's no business, but there's a lot of music. And let's take a short break for our sponsors. We'll be right back and talk about Austin City Limits. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. And we're back with Jonek Potoski. Jonek, tell us about the launch of Austin City Limits and how that brought the television element into the whole thing. You know, the period was very exciting uh, because, you know, things are happening and, you know, by 1973, Willie Nelson has his own shotgun. Willie has done some on the band out with Bob Dylan and, and, and Dr. John. There's a lot of buzz going on. And what really triggered the buzz, I think uh, uh, you go back to 1972 Thanksgiving at the Armadillo World Headquarters. The night before the Grateful Dead plays a gig in Austin, and Eddie Wilson talked, uh, Jerry Garcia and Flesh, and they're hanging around another day. And they organize a jam at the Armadillo, that's all together, completely spontaneous, thanks for the afternoon. And Jim Franklin has been paying the swimming pool of the biggest act, the biggest rock and roll act going, this guy named Leon Russell. He's up in Tulsa. He's returned from L.A., and he's basically building a music empire in his hometown. And Jim Franklin introduces Leon Russell to Willie Nelson and gets Leon to come join this jam at the Armadillo. So the Thanksgiving jam in 1972 at the Armadillo is, is this great moment where everybody does jam. No, no money is charged. There's a great recording of it, but it's like, you know, this this is the spirit of Austin. Well, Leon Russell all of a sudden is smitten with Austin because no matter what Leon's doing up in Tulsa, he meets this guy, Willie Nelson, and Leon's fixing to do his, his country crossover, the album Hank Wilson's Back. And here's some guy that's even more authentic than Leon could ever wish to be. That's Willie Nelson. And Willie Nelson realizes Leon's the biggest thing in rock, so there's this mutual respect and, and friendship that goes on. And Leon kind of returns the favor by bringing down, he, he has a video crew that he calls Shelter Vision, and he brings all these people into video Austin's music scene to take videos of it in 1973, 1974, and this becomes a big deal. And at the same time, uh, Austin Community Television have do videos and they're teaching them how to do it at the Armadillo, teaching them how to do port with Sony Porta Packs. And there's a a video crew originally out of Houston, headed up by, by this guy named Bill Narum. And they're based in this little tiny town forty miles east of Austin called Taylor. They've taken over the cable franchise there. 
and these hippies from Houston uh, decided to do original programming by videoing a lot of the acts at the Armadillo World Headquarters. So all this gets noticed by this guy named Bill Arhos, who's working for uh, this brand new public broadcasting television station that is in San Antonio and Austin both. It's called KLRN. And he gets the idea, uh, we ought to do a, a, some video in there. And they do a, a, he organizes a, a broadcast live from the Armadillo that's simulcast on FM rock stations in San Antonio and Austin. And there's all this is kind of coming together to the point that our host is able to hustle up some money from public broadcasting and uh, to do a pilot in 1974 of this, he wants to do a music series. There's already a music series. There's, there's this show out of San Francisco public uh, broadcasting called Bobo Kavari, and there's soundstage in Chicago. But, you know, the idea is, you know, this is, this is a great live music scene. Let's capture it and let's, you know, show it to the world. And through a great deal of serendipity, Willie Nelson is... Uh, chosen to do the pilot for Austin City Limits, the first broadcast. Uh, and uh, he, actually, B.W. Stevenson was going to pair up with him, but delivered such a poor performance, they decided just to use all Willie Nelson. And let's hear, let's hear Willie Nelson doing Bloody Mary Morning from that first uh, Austin City Limits broadcast. Bloody merry morning, baby Left me without warning sometime in the night So I'm flying down to Houston With forgetting her the nature of my flight As we taxi tore the runway With a smog and haze reminding me of how I feel and that was Willie Nelson Doing Bloody Mary Morning On the first ever Austin City Limits broadcast Back to you, Joe Nick Yeah, you can see and hear In that segment Uh it's what I saw a couple of years earlier when I saw Willie Nelson and family uh, at McMorris Ford playing on the back of a flatbed truck. Uh, and they were, you know, live country music band, Free Hot Dogs and Cokes, and the 1974 Fords were all being shown at McMorris Ford. It was a free gig. And I went, I didn't go for the hot dogs or sodas. I wanted to go see Willie Nelson. And, and it was, it, you know, it was such a traditional country music performance until they play Bloody Mary Morning, and as they're playing that, and when Willie starts taking off on that long, extended guitar jam, my eyes went wide because it was the same thing I'd seen in the previous year when I saw the Grateful Dead perform, and I saw the Allman Brothers perform with Dwayne Allman and Dickie Betts. This was like, you know, this was jam music, except these were country cats that were doing jam music, and they were doing it just as good and just as intensely. And that was, that was by, by the time Willie appears on Austin City Limits, this begins to coalesce. Willie Nelson becomes the figurehead of Austin music. And he's the figurehead of, of, of music in Texas. But it's not until he puts out the album uh, Redheaded Stranger in 1975 does his popularity translate outside of Texas. 
from about 73 to 75, Willie Nelson was a Texas thing. And hardly anyone else knew about him, but he owned Texas during that period of time. And you started seeing this, you know, he had jam, a jam band that would play five-hour shows. And backstage, there were there were 200 people backstage. And it was everyone from, you know, state politicians to dope dealers. And they were all glued to Willie. And this is kind of when, you know, the TV show starts selling Austin when when Austin City Limits goes on the air, and the first season in 1975 was pretty critical because Joe Gracie, who was the morning disc jockey on Coke FM, was pretty much the intellectual architect of what Austin City Limits would become because he was instrumental in not just getting. Uh, you know, a Willie Nelson or a Jerry Jeff Walker or Michael Murphy or Willis Allen Ramsey on stage, he rounded up the original Texas Playboys, Bob Willsby and the remaining members and matched them up with Sleep at the Wheel. He got one of the most popular live acts to play Austin clubs, Clifton Chenier and his Red Hot Louisiana band. They were on Austin City Limits. He was hip, Gracie was hip enough to know what was going on and I went out with Gracie to go see these um, Mexican dances out at the Rock and M Club that uh, when Flaco Jimenez was was playing, we knew who Flaco was because Doug Som put him on that uh, album with with Bob Dylan and introduced Flaco Jimenez to the world. So we was going out to these dances and it was you know it was largely a Mexican American or Mexican audience and you know there were very few Anglo's in the crowd, but we went out to hear Flaco because there was this guy that was learning how to play bajo sexo guitar with Flacco named Ry Cooter. And Gracie and I were nuts for Ry Cooter. Gracie played the shit out of him on, on Coke FM. And here was Flacco Jimenez um, teaching uh, Ry Cooter, you know, how, you know, he was by, by learning by experience. Ry was learning how to play bajo sexo, a very distinctive guitar, 12-string guitar that was the 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 complement of the accordion and the text mix sound. And I remember when we first went out to go see Rye, it's, but uh, would introduce in Spanish to the audience, my good friend, Rye Cooler. And no one, they didn't even applaud. They, you know, they just thought, oh, an Anglo guy learning how to play guitar, cool. So, you know, Gracie really made Austin City Limits kind of set the, the standard on which it, it would grow in, and eventually become. It went through some years when it was basically, uh, it was an apologetic uh, 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 show that would play, had one local band and one national band. And the joke around Austin was, oh, you know, it's Nashville city limits. But, you know, the fact of the matter is what it became was a showcase, the window uh, of Austin to the world. And I met so many people that told me how they learned about Austin uh, watching that program. And the fact is that program today is the longest running music program in the history of television. And it's a very different program today. But it started again with these simple ideas about showcasing what was going on in the Austin clubs. And, (laughs) And live music remained throughout this period, the basis on which all music is judged. The important thing was to go watch someone play live, and the important thing for an artist was you give it all you've got. 
in front of these 100 people. And, you know, whether anyone else hears it or not, whether it's recorded or you become famous, it doesn't matter. So, you know, to be in Austin in the 70s and to, you know, to pay two bucks here, you know, young Stevie Vaughn play at the Continental Club or, you know, he was only a dollar on Sunday nights at the Row Men when it was $5 to pay uh, the next night uh, for the Monday night uh, show with the famous Thunderbirds. I mean, we and, were spoiled, man. <laughs> and tell us, you, you're, you're bringing up the... You're bringing up the leaders of the next scene, but I want to talk about the guy who kind of built the home that they blew up the blues revival out of, and that's Clifford Antone. Tell us about Clifford Antone, how he came to town and kicked off the blues revival in the 70s. Well, you know, again, this early 70s period was, was, was things were just happening everywhere you looked. And, you know, new things were popping up everywhere. Uh, in 1975, uh, a club was opened downtown on 6th Street, which at the time was not a place where people went after after dark. It was historically during segregation. 6th Street was the main street for minorities. There was Congress Avenue for, for the Anglos. The north side of 6th Street was for, for, for African-Americans. The south side of 6th Street was for Mexican-Americans. And again, it was kind of a, not a place you went downtown. Well, there was a guy that, that had come to UT, to uh, come to Austin to attend UT, uh, got kicked out pretty quick because he got caught trying to smuggle weed in a, a car tire down on the border coming into Laredo. So instead of uh, going to school, Clifford Antone was running Antone's Imports, his family's food import business. But I remember going in there somewhere around 74, I guess, to get something at the imports and you had to go in the back of the store and there was this guy playing uh, his bass guitar along to blues music in the back of the place, clearly not interested in running his family's business, clearly more interested in playing bass guitar. The next year, Clifford Antones opens up Antones Nightclub at 6th and Brazos Street on, in, in downtown Austin. And I'm there on opening night because Clifton Chenier opens the, the, the club and I've already been checking Clifton out at the uh, at Soap Creek Saloon. And I think the second week he had Muddy Waters come in. Place was packed. Uh, third week, Alan Wolf's band. And I got to tell you, at first, Clifton packed the joint, this old furniture store, and Muddy packed the joint. But the joint wasn't always packed, but there was all of a sudden all these great bands coming in from Chicago and from, you know, elsewhere in the South. And Clifford Antone opened up his nightclub as basically a reaction. And I remember he was saying, you know, we're not hippies. We're not like those cosmic cowboys at Soap Creek Saloon, like that Doug Tom uh, and, you know, my staff, we dress up. We, we, we look good. We're not a bunch of hippies. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that was the case, but Clifford thought that by doing blues and presenting himself nicely, uh, this was a reaction to the Cosmic Cowboy scene. And it was. And in fact, I mean, what happened is all of a sudden, it wasn't just a place for touring blues acts, but all the local acts that were basically playing toilets and shitholes um, had a nicer place to play in Clifford Hayden's bands. So there were several young bands starting out, famously the the Cobras, who were playing, they were one of the house bands at Silk Creek. 
they started playing at uh, at Antones, and the Cobras were famous because they had two guitars, Danny Freeman, guitarist who would later go on and play with Taj Mahal and Bob Dylan, uh, and his Danny's younger mentor from Dallas, or younger protege from Dallas, Stevie Vaughan, and little Stevie was the brother of the guitarist that all the blues cats thought was the best in town. Jimmy Vaughn had been in a band called The Storm, but he put together a new band called The, the Thunderbirds, the famous Thunderbirds, with this harmonicist from Detroit named Kim Wilson, a drummer from uh, Fort Worth, Mike Buck, a friend of mine, a bass player from Houston named Keith Ferguson. So the Thunderbirds started out and basically were one of the house bands at Antums. And what was critical is when people like, oh, let's say, yeah, uh, uh, Howlin' Lewis Band would come. Uh, uh, Hubert Sumlin, the guitarist who played, was basically raised by Howlin' Wolf. Clifford would have Hubert hang around town for a week or two afterwards. And maybe he'd play on weekends with whatever bands he was bringing in. But what he did was basically have a finishing school for young musicians. People like Jimmy and Stevie Vaughn or Denny Freeman, Derek O'Brien, these young guitarists could would not only be able to listen and hear these guys play and maybe even sit in with them, but they could hang out with them. And they could ask Luther Tucker, how did you do this? They they had direct contact and this is where Clifford was unwittingly, you know, creating school. And, you know, it, it became pretty quick. I mean, Albert King never liked screwing around with the hippies or, or white kids or playing white kid gigs. He'd take his money and go. But there was this puppy dog that started hounding him on the very first time he pulled his bus up to the curb. And not only was this puppy dog eager and nice and solicitous, but he had he played you know, thick wound strings like Albert did. And he had the same kind of muscular fingers that Albert did. And so Albert, where he wouldn't mess around with the young, young white kids much, he took a shine to Stevie Vaughn and started every time he'd come to town, he'd take time out and hang out with this young kid and, and they would talk shop. So Robert Anton, by the end of the seventies, about the time that the armadillo closes, uh, Real estate on Sixth Street's gotten to be so hot that he Clifford loses his lease and he has to move his club. It moves west up north and settles into in the early eighties into a location on, uh, by the University of Texas that lasts all the way into the late nineties before he moves back downtown. Club moves around many times and oddly by the end of its run on Sixth Street, although Clifford said he wasn't going to do any of that hippie shit. He discovers Doug Somm knows Timon Walker guitar better than Jimmy Vaughn or Stevie Vaughn or Derek O'Brien or any of these people. And so he finally, Doug and Clifford discover each other. And Doug winds up recording some of his best blues albums for Clifford Anton's custom record label. And Clifford opens up a, a record, record shop, starts a record label, and basically triggers the, the blues revival in the United States. If not for Clifford, the fabulous Thunderbirds wouldn't have happened. It became a thing and not only, you know, just excited people on the East Coast, it became, you know, this this hot sensation in London and, you know, Nick Nick Lowe and 
Elvis Costello and, and uh, 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 Dave Edmonds, they all discovered, you know, rich rockers in London, but they discovered, man, the real shit's coming out of Austin. So and the Thunder Bunny kind of lead the way. And then when Stevie puts out albums in the early 80s, uh, he puts Austin on the map again. He's the first one since Willie Nelson that really announces this is a, you know, Austin is an important music community. And Stevie becomes, you know, a one name superstar, much like Willie was. And let's hear Stevie Ray's breakthrough performance from Austin City Limits. This is Stevie Ray Vaughn covering Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child. Stevie Ray Vaughan in Double Trouble on Austin City Limits performing Voodoo Child. And I know that's the first time I saw Stevie Ray Vaughan, and that really blew my mind uh, sitting up there in Borger, Texas, seeing somebody uh, not only playing authentic blues, but playing Hendrix-style rock and roll. I think I was about in seventh grade at the time and um, you know, just discovering the doors in Jimi Hendrix and 60s rock. And, and here was the real thing, and totally just blew us away. And, and by the time I think it would be aired. Yeah, can you hear me, Joe Nick? Yeah, no, I, uh, Nate, you're right. Yeah. Uh, Stevie could do both, but that was actually kind of a liability in the 70s because with Antones, you know, how blue can you be and how black can you get? And Stevie, you know, Jimmy, his older brother, was this master of economy. It was like the space between the notes. And he played very, he was a minimalist almost with his guitar. His younger brother, every time he got a chance to play, wanted to show you everything he knew. And a lot of times that, that included the Hendrix stuff. He could do Hendrix better than Robin Frower or, you know, uh, Frank Marino, uh, both of which had, were actually played the Armadillo. And Stevie would open and just blow him away. But among the blues towns, you know, it was like, oh, that Hendrix shit. So it really took Stevie getting out of Austin to be really appreciated for all his talents, and, and it's true. No one played Hendrix with the same kind of passion and, and precision as Stevie did, uh, and no one has since. And no one has played electric blues guitar with the power and passion that Stevie did since. I mean, he's kind of the last of his breed. Uh, there have been many that have followed in his footsteps, but you know, no one got that direct transmission. And and I think that's it shows now. Of course, you know, like when Jimmy is the elder now. This that's what's weird is we've all become kind of uh, if you live long enough, you become historians, and then you turn into history. <laughs> it's coming for everybody. Joe Nick, we're going to have to wrap up our first hour here, and I hope to get you back on to talk about the birth sure. of Austin Chronicle, South by Southwest, uh, and and the on into the '90s and the ACL Festival and the whole thing, and get Austin where it is today. So, Joe Nick, thanks so much for coming on, and that's it for this half of Let It Roll. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Joe Nick Butoski about his book Austin to ATX: The Hippies. Pickers, slackers, and geeks who transformed the capital of Texas. Joe Nick, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me back, Nate. Glad to be it's, here. 
It's a pleasure. And, and we left off, I think we were talking about uh, the rise of, of Clifford Antone's blues empire and the, and the blues revival that happened in Austin with Stevie Ray Vaughan and his brother uh, Jimmy and his band, the Fabulous Thunderbirds. But something else that was going around on around the same time was the end of the Armadillo World Headquarters. Yep. The Armadillo World Headquarters closing New Year's Eve 1980 was kind of the end of a, of a, a, a fantastic decade, musically speaking, because Austin became this, you know, a music capital. And there, every music pride that there is was represented in Austin by 1980. And the Armadillo, which had been struggling since the very beginning, was actually making money. They were, they were turning a profit and really the breadth of music they were bringing in because, you know, my first exposure to the Ramones, to the Clash, to Elvis Costello, uh, to so many talking heads, so many different bands and then, you know, mainstream bands. And then the weird stuff that they did, like Roy Buchanan, the guitar uh, uh, virtuoso, or hearing Old and New Dreams, the band that played with uh, the revolutionary jazz cat Ornette Coleman. All these things were happening at the Armadillo. So every music tribe in Austin could go see a, a touring act, uh, the kind of music they liked. The Armadillo featured it. So its demise was very disappointing in that the people running it had gotten their acts together. Unfortunately, real estate had become such an animal. It was creating such instant wealth, people flipping land, uh, doing deals where they just like, you know, turn a piece of property over in 30 days. Well, the owner of the land, uh, the Armadillo, M.K. Haig, decided to pull the plug and uh, saw more opportunity in erecting a 12-story uh, a office tower where the Armadillo was. Unfortunately, uh, that left a big hole culturally in Austin because the Armadillo was this, this cultural center. It was a gathering point. It was a community center. And not just for Austin, but for Texas and the Southwest. If you were different, you made your, your pilgrimage to the Armadillo. So its demise was very disappointing, but as it closed, uh, there were all these scenes going on. It wasn't just the blues scene. There was a very healthy punk scene that started at Raul's that morphed over into new wave music that was featured at Duke's Royal Coach Inn, the original Vulcan Gas Company downtown, and at Club Foot downtown. So it was really, the, the scene uh when the Armadillo closed was more diverse and more buried than ever before, but it lost its touchstone. And one thing I think it's important to point out about the Armadillo that was lost was I remember when the Clash played, Joe Ely opened up for the Clash, and that sort of was the beginning of a pretty public love affair between the Clash and the, and the Austin. Um, I don't exactly know how to describe what scene Joe Ely would be, sort of a new wave friendly country movement coming out of Lubbock would be the closest thing I could describe to the vibe that Joe Ely had going on in 1980. But I know that was a big boost for Joe Ely's credibility, not just in Texas, but nationally and internationally as well. Well, Joe, Joe's the band that Joe started in, in Lubbock with, with Lloyd Maines, Jesse Taylor, uh, Pawnee Bone, uh, all those good players uh, was a country dance band it just happened to be, you know, super fueled and charged up. They rocked up country in, in such a way that they did not succeed in their albums that they recorded in Nashville for MCA Records. They weren't hits, but it's a live band. There probably wasn't a better band 
<laughs> they were like a roadhouse band, and they 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 could have been the best band in Texas at that time. So when they pop up and they tour in London and play a few dates, the Clash, uh, they 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 click right in. The Clash is is making this kind of revolutionary, taking roots music and punk rock and reinventing music, and they saw Ely doing the same thing. And it was really a case of both bands looking at the other and wanting what the other had. And the Clash were definitely, you know, romanticized the American mythic West. And when they came to Texas, when they came and hung out with Joey Lee's band in Austin, opened up uh, or, you know, shared bills with them in Austin and in Lubbock as well, uh, they were kind of like uh, fantasizing, realizing the dream. And so it was like, I'm not sure who got more out of the proposition but it's very telling i mean joe ely opening up for the clash is no different than uh a few years earlier having a band like greasy wheels yeah okay they're, they're not going to house band but to have alvin crow and his pleasant valley boys open up for bruce springsteen on bruce springsteen's first appearance in texas and scaring the pee waddle out of bruce springsteen because he'd never heard a western swing band that could rock and they were intimidated so it was Getting to mix up all these influences, no place was a better place for that happening on a large scale that I mean to be argued as national, like the Armadillo. And its demise was, I mean, the people who ran it were idealists in many ways, and, and they had, uh, they weren't just there to run a business and make a profit. And pretty much concert promotion since in Austin, although there have been some pretty storied clubs that have followed. Most of the, the larger venues, you know, Austin became just a generic concert city with a vast concert hall, the Frank Irwin Arena. I mean, shows there were not much different than shows in an arena in Houston or Dallas. It really, what the closing of Armadillo also underscored was the importance of clubs to the vitality of Austin music and basically defining Austin music scene. Austin's music scene was not Bruce Springsteen playing the Irwin Center, which after he played the Armadillo, when he came back around, he played the Irwin Center, sold it out. And I remember I walked out after the third song because I was up in the nosebleed seat and I'd seen Bruce Springsteen within spitting distance with the Armadillo. I thought, you know, this arena thing, this this is for the birds. I walked out. And it was always the clubs. It was Stevie Vaughan playing his ass off at the Continental Club or the Austex Lounge or after hours, or even at Antones, in front of maybe 100 people, but playing his ass off because this is all that mattered. And he wasn't thinking, I'm saving it to make a record, or, you know, I'm, I'm waiting until I get bigger to really show what I've got. No, he played his ass off in clubs for 100 people that paid two bucks for to be there at that moment. And if you weren't there, you didn't see it. And to me, that's the essence of Austin's music scene. By 1980, Austin was recognized internationally as a roots town for music because all this country music had come out uh, that Willie Nelson and all the, the progressive country people had started. Uh, the Thunderbirds and, and Stevie Vaughan had revved up, re revitalized the blues internationally. Uh, the punk rock and the new wave scene produced a lot of national acts that were you know, sign nationally significant from a band I managed, Joe King Carrasco and the Crowns, to the Big Boys and Scratch Acid, and you know uh, uh, another band I managed, the True Believers and uh, the Reavers and the New Sincerity uh, Movement, 
all these things were happening out of Austin, and they were happening for the wrong reason. No one was getting, trying to get rich. Everybody was in Austin to make music because they could, and they could make music the way they wanted to make it on their own terms without worrying about uh, placating the so-called industry because there was no industry. And let's go back a little bit to that Raul's uh, punk scene before we talk about the new Sincerity bands because the the punk scene in Austin, I think, was the first time since the 13th Floor Elevators that Austin was on the cutting edge of innovations in rock. And it was not just a punk scene. It was one of the craziest, most outre scenes in the whole United States. I mean, you had two of the biggest bands, the Dicks and the Big Boys with openly gay front men. You had the Butthole Surfers who were complete freaks and one-offs and scratch acid who was coming up right on their heels almost as weird talk about that a little bit and how that interacted with the roots and and progressive country and frat boy scenes going on in austin at the time well just like the blues scene that clifford antone created was his reaction against progressive country you know we're going to dress nice and we're going to look cool the punk scene was a reaction against (laughs) all other scenes and it was basically, you know, start your own band, uh, put out your own fanzine, do it yourself. And when the punk scene started around 1978 in Austin, I mean, it was, <laughs> I remember judging a, a uh, battle of the punk bands. And ironically, it was won by a Dallas New Wave band called the Nerve Breakers. But uh, second place went to a band called the Violators, which were interesting because they were all women. They were all girls except for their bass player, Jesse Sublett, who was a drummer. I mean, who was a bass player. And Jesse Jesse had his own band uh, that he started after the Violators, which were probably the most popular punk band on the roll scene, the Skunks. They were a power trio. But the Violators were interesting because uh, they were led by uh, two women in particular, Carla Olson and um, Kathy Valentine, both of whom left Austin to seek their fame and fortune in Los Angeles on the punk scene. Carla had a band called the Tech Stones that Kathy played with for a while. Kathy broke away and then started playing with a band uh, that became the first all-female uh, band of any significance in the modern era, the Go-Go's. So there were a lot of elements that early on, 78, 79, most of the punk scene to me, uh, and I was managing Joe King Carrasco, and Joe King managed to sneak his way in as a punk because he was doing Tex Wet Mex. Uh, Tex-Mex Nuevo Huevo and the owners of the uh, of Lowell's were Chicanos. Joseph Gonzalez understood what Joe King was doing, even though the punks didn't. The punk scene in Austin early on was pretty generic. They were getting all their cues from New York, you know, people in black wearing leather and, and dyeing your hair black, and a little bit of influence from L.A. and San Francisco. But what the Austin punk scene had that no other punk scene had was an elder. And that elder was Rocky Erickson, the founding member of the 13th Floor Elevators, who had uh, had, had some rough uh, sledding because he'd gone into the Rust Institute of Mentally, for the Mentally Insane, got a lot of electroshock therapy. Didn't come out the same. And he started his own bands in the mid-70s. But when Raul started up, he started hooking up uh, with the Nerve Breakers from Dallas and probably most famously with it. <coughs> most famously with a band of ringers called the Explosives. And Cam King and Waller Colley, uh, these guys have been playing with Jerry Jeff Walker's band. 
they were actual musicians that knew better. But you know, they 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 cut their hair with they spiked up their hair and wore skinny ties and passed off as new ways. And they're actually a great backup band for Rocky because Rocky was this link between the punk ethic of the nineteen sixties when punk rock really started with all the garage bands and with his band, the 13 Floor Elevators, and linked that up with the punks of the late 70s, the punks that were inspired by the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Ramones and all these other bands. And Rocky's presence changed the dynamic of the scene markedly. I mean, Rocky was out there. He was an extremist. And I think that extreme element, when you go back to uh, 1978 or nine. Uh, when Phil Tallstead, the leader of the band, the Huns, who were a very extreme band and doing what they thought they should do, were so disruptive that a policeman uh, uh, interrupted the performance, telling him to turn it down. And Phil Tallstead famously kissed a cop and got arrested. And that kind of set the table for bands like the Big Boys, who were just so imaginative with their visuals. Uh, uh, Randy Biscuit Turner was was really kind of a he had to say a similar aesthetic to David Byrne, uh, the Talking Heads, or maybe the guys in Devo that he saw music visually. And the Big Boys wasn't just a driving performance, a punk band that happened to in, integrate funk into their punk, but they were always doing crazy stuff visually, and that kind of set the stage for you know a Scratch Acid, which was just like how extreme and how over the top can you get? And all of that was a continuity that really, that period of punk lasted briefly into the early 80s before in Austin it became the new sincerity and it was another kind of rock and roll. And that was the True Believers, uh, Zeitgeist, the Reavers, Doctors Mob, a whole new wave of bands that came out of a, a club called The Beach. Uh, uh, near the campus of, uh, of UT. But interestingly enough, punk never died because Scratch Acid in particular and the big boys became very influential, especially on the West Coast uh, with the West Coast punk bands. They they were kind of giving those bands on the West Coast and, and record labels like the SST, they were dropping cues to like the next wave of punk. And just as that punk started revving up, and came a band out of San Antonio of, of Trinity University students. They played a little bit in San Antonio, but there was no punk scene. I mean, they could play in front of 30 friends. They came up to Austin and tapped into this audience, and the butthole surfers took the punk ethic and elevated it and took it to an extreme, both sonically and visually, uh, that no one could rival on earth. So in the late 80s into the 90s, if there was something called punk rock uh, anywhere in the world, the arbiters of that kind of punk rock were the biggest band uh, of that ilk, and that was the Butthole Surfers. They were brilliant. They were scary. Uh, no two shows alike and completely over the top. I had the, the pleasure of early on when the Butthole started breaking of interviewing their lead singer, Gibby Haynes, with his father, who I knew uh, growing up in Dallas-Fort Worth, Gibby's father, Jerry Haynes, was a, a kiddie uh, television show host named Misty Peppermint. 
And Mr. Peppermint was this goofy guy with a big smile that always wore this this, this uh, bowler hat and, and striped sport coat. It was just kind of like so, you know, square and silly and gentle. And, his, and Jerry's son, Jerry was also an actor, but his son Gibby was a chip off the old block that took every cue that Jerry had set and basically put a devious spin on it. They were they were uh, they were a wicked band to witness because you never knew what was happening. Or yeah, what I had, happened. And I remember. I remember I one a, show at Liberty. Beach. I took my 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 son who was like not even a year old, and uh, they they were running a film uh, while the buttholes performed of uh, of some guy getting his teeth yanked down, a black and white film, and it was horrible and it made you squirm. But that's the kind of band they were. So there is that continuity between. Rocky Erickson and 13 floor elevators in the 1960s with the butthole surfers, which takes you into the 21st century. And no punk scene can claim that kind of linear history that Austin can. And let's hear a little bit of the butthole surfers. This is off their first uh, full length LP. This is the butthole surfers doing Mexican caravan. Butthole Surfers doing Mexican Caravan, a little ditty about running down to Mexico to score some illegal pills. And yeah, I came down from Borger, Texas in the late 80s when I was 18 and and just fell off the cabbage truck and went to see the Butthole Surfers, I think the first three or four weeks I was here. And it was absolutely a life-changing experience. I don't know if it was for the better or not. But <laughs> it, it, uh, uh, we, we know what we're talking about. And that's the thing. If, if, if you if you saw the butthole surfers, uh, I mean, you can listen to records, but you didn't experience them. But if you've experienced them, you know, it's just like, it ain't nothing like it. There wasn't anything yeah. like it before, and there hasn't been anything like it since. No, absolutely marked for life. And around this time, there was a new development because a weekly paper started up that kind of became the official, unofficial record of the Austin scene. Well, actually, you know, you go back to the 1970s. In the 1970s, there was a bi-weekly that started in Austin called the Austin Sun, which, you know, attempted to be an alternative paper. Uh, that was kind of a new idea, but it was like showing another side of, you know, of the city the newspaper didn't, the daily newspaper. And Austin's daily newspaper was, was notoriously square, even though um, even in the early 70s, they had a, a country music columnist. Townsend Miller and, and a rock music columnist, Joe Gracie, and they basically wrote about the same thing. I was a, I worked for the Statesman in the late 70s, but the Statesman was the Statesman. It was a square daily newspaper. And the Sun tried to, uh, you know, adopt a model of the Village Voice in New York or the LA Free Press in Los Angeles and basically catered to the audience that wasn't getting catered to by the daily paper. And its focus was on the music scene, definitely. The, the The sun ran its course after about two or three years, and it just ran out of gas. And most of their staff moved to Los Angeles, where many of them became instrumental in starting up the L.A. Weekly. Uh, 
you know, there was again the Austin influence, the Austin exiles going somewhere else and creating a scene. But there was a void, and when the the Austin Sun uh, vanished, these film students at the University of Texas that were were at UT mainly for film to watch movies, but they were hipsters too, and they liked going out and hearing music. Got together and and decided, uh, you know, we need we need to start up our own Sun, and we you know. And it was actually originally a bi-weekly as well. It went pretty quickly to a weekly. It was called the Austin Chronicle. And when I officed in an old house on West 12th Street, a block from uh, the original Austin High School, which is the old Austin Community College campus, uh, there was a door that separated me from uh, from other tenants who were the Austin Chronicle. So I was managing Joe King, Carrasco, and the Crowns, who'd kind of blown up and I'd gotten them record deals with Stiff Records and MCA Records, and I had an office, and in fact, I had an office assistant named Roland Swenson, who was managing bands, and Roland would go on to become the director of South by Southwest, still is the director of South by Southwest, but there was a door that separated me from Louis Black and Nick Barbaro and the gang from the Austin Chronicle, so I got to see the Chronicle kind of come of age and turn into a weekly and become in this force that not only did they cover, you know, music and the arts in a way that the daily newspaper didn't, uh, but they started covering politics and, and local affairs and, and becoming a better source of news than the daily newspaper. So it was a it was actually a, a, a pretty great addition to the the landscape. I mean, by the time the Chronicles started up, uh, Coke FM, the progressive country radio station, it changed formats and run its course. But you had KLBJ FM was, you know, was trying to posture itself as we're playing a lot of Austin music. And you had other stations, radio stations come along to play Austin music. And you had a community access channel dedicated to nothing but music. I mean, no other city had a music channel that just showed videos of local acts. But, you know, Austin did. But of all those media, uh, there was no media that had the influence and really basically started this change where all things alternative in Austin became mainstream. I think the the, the first uh, touchstone was the Chronicle. It became a mainstream publication and one of the most successful alternative weeklies in the United States. Uh, and it was very influential. In fact, uh, uh, these characters at the Phoenix New Times who basically started buying up, they bought up all these papers, Westward and uh, in Denver, the Dallas Observer, the Houston Press. They ended up buying the Village Voice in New York and the LA Weekly. They had a standing offer to the owners of the Austin Chronicle. Anytime you guys want to sell, we want to buy. But the owners never wanted to sell. In fact, they kept the Chronicle. And because the Chronicle, Chronicle became not just a champion of music, but a champion of film and a champion of local independent film in a way that no other media was doing. And basically the Chronicle identified the independent film community that was growing up in Austin. And Lewis Black had a was very helpful early on with uh, these two independent filmmakers, Lee Daniel and Rick Linkletter, who started uh, the, the Austin Film Society basically is a way, is a means to watch more indie films. And then they became filmmakers. 
And similarly, the Chronicle was very critical, and not just film and in music, but the Chronicle was the institution that launched South by Southwest. And you can't talk about Austin. You can't talk about alternative culture globally without talking South by Southwest. Absolutely. And it was originally designed to feature Austin artists, but it quickly grew into much more than that. Well, the whole purpose of South by Southwest, it goes back to, I like to cite back to standing on the parking lot in 1979, parking lot of Raul's. And being lucky enough, when my band, Joe King Carrasco and the Crowns were just starting out, we got lucky to get some opening slots to probably one of the two most popular bands on the Raul's punk scene. And that was a new way band called Standing Waves. And their manager, Roland Swenson, I became friends with. And Roland and I would sit out in the parking lot during breaks and discuss, you know, how do you get your foot in the door? You know, your band's making a recording how do you get that to the record labels and you know, what labels are signing independent bands or anyone interested in what's going on in Austin in New York or LA. And I really think it was kind of those conversations. And then a, a conference in New York called the new music seminar, which attempted to link independent artists and bands with the record major labels, record labels in New York. Uh, so they would have all these bands come up to New York and play in clubs and they would have these talent scouts come out and listen to the bands. Well, that was such a successful con uh, concept for one or two years that, and Roland was involved with that because he'd moved standing ways to New York and uh, he was involved. I was, I was there uh, with, with Joe King in their first years of the new music seminar. And it was a pretty cool thing, but it's still in New York. Roland got the idea to, let's take this concept and let's move it out of New York and had had the organizers of the new music seminar agree to sponsor a satellite conference in Austin, new music seminar Southwest. And the idea would be, you know, for people that can't make it to New York, we'll bring the, the business, the record labels, the talent scouts to Austin and we'll showcase all these independent bands. And the idea was, well, we'll round up all these other alternative newspapers like the Austin Chronicle around the country, and we'll get them, each uh, alternative newspaper will send a few of their bands to Austin, their best bands from St. Louis, the best bands from Omaha, uh, the best bands from uh, Miami, you know, and uh, it was going to work, except the New Music Seminar knuckleheads were so screwed up and so, <laughs> uh, they they had too much of a good thing they decided to cancel the new music seminar Southwest because they couldn't get it together. And that's when Roland went to the convention and visitors bureau to get a little bit of money. Uh, he went to the Austin Chronicle to be the sponsor and created the first South by Southwest. And the idea was to showcase Austin and other independent bands from around the country to the record industry. All the bands that couldn't get their foot in the door, they were going to, play in Austin and all the labels would send their, their, their talent scouts and A&R people to Austin. And if there's anyone good, they would sign them up. That was the, the music was the reason for South by Southwest. It took about five, seven or eight years before the film element was introduced along with a technological element. Um, 
and you know they they were going to bring in you know the idea was uh, not interactive but uh, CD-ROMs were real big at the time and they thought that they would bring in uh, this element of technology because it seemed like that was sort of meshing with movies and with music that there was some kind of convergence here and <laughs> you know what happened is uh, South by Southwest became the biggest music happening uh, on earth every every March if you wanted to hear music and, and whatever was new it was happening in Austin in March and pretty soon it became a showcase for independent film as well as mainstream film if you had something new to show to the hipsters around the world you rolled it out in March at South by Southwest and then this idea of CD-ROMs and, and inter, interactive became this technology conference that basically became a monster, became bigger than music, became bigger than film, and is, is basically defines Austin today. Austin is, yeah, it's still kind of a music town, although it's, it's pretty hard to afford to live in Austin and work in clubs because it's hard to run a club in Austin. It's so expensive today. Affordability is an issue. It's very much a town of independent filmmakers. It's not just a place to shoot film. It's a place where filmmakers live and where entire studios exist. And Rick Linklater started that up with Robert Rodriguez and with Mike Judge, and it's just grown exponentially since. But the technology end has become whatever is new and shiny and, uh, you know, the technology world wants to roll out, it's at South by Southwest. The very first Airbnb was rented at South by Southwest by the founder of South by uh, Airbnb. Um, Jeff Bezos attended South by Southwest early on to see what this technology thing was all about. Um, uh, famously, Twitter was rolled out at South by Southwest. So every year there are these technological innovations that are rolled out. I don't know about it for probably, you know, it takes six months to a year for it to trickle down to someone like me to understand what's just happened. But that all started with music. And now it's, you know, whatever the new shiny object is, technologically speaking, it, it's, it's an Austin. So all these things go back to these simple ideas. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could get our bands, our creative, our creative people in touch with the, the business people that make, make things happen? And that's what's happened. But what's also happened is the business end has grown to the point, you know, it threatens creativity. It threatens music. And if the affordability issue didn't present a challenge to Austin, and it is a challenge because your creators can no longer afford to live in the city. They have to move out to the suburbs or to smaller towns. And when that happens, you turn into kind of like a, a it, it's a desert. It's like San Francisco, great city, but the creatives don't live there. They, they have to live somewhere else because they, they can't afford to. Manhattan, you know, the creatives moved out a long time ago to, to Brooklyn, then to Queens, and they're moving all to the, all these other places because they can't afford to live here. And that's a challenge for Austin in the 21st century, one that's been recognized. But to have that challenge and to be facing it, and it's, it's severe, it's recognized. And, and, you know, all these task force, the mayor recognizes it. Uh, Gary Keller, Keller Williams, the biggest real estate 
uh, a firm of its kind in the world based in Austin. He realizes it. But what are you going to do about it? And then to have the COVID, you can do carry out restaurants, but you can't do, you can't run a club for, for music. Um, everything about Austin's club scene has been uh, challenged and diminished and maybe destroyed by COVID-19 and affordability conspiring together. And, and let, you know, what happened? Let me jump in for a second. Let's hear from our sponsors real quick, and then we'll come back and hear. There's a couple more developments before we shut the door on Austin that I want to I wanna ask you about, and we'll talk about those in just a second. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. And before we shut the door on Austin, there were a couple developments that happened that made it even bigger than just South by Southwest, just metastasizing into this mega conference that took over the whole city and became the media center of the world uh, for several years running. You know, the New York Times would have a 18-page spread about what was going on in Austin that week, and the whole tech world was oriented, and, you know, you had Beyonce doing pop-up concerts and all kinds of craziness. But around the same time, you had Austin's most famous athlete get involved with the our old friends from the Austin City Limits and create an even bigger music festival. The, the, the role of Lance Armstrong tends to get diminished because although he was a, a seven-time winner of the Tour de France, uh, he cheated and was caught. Uh, he lied and was caught. He doped and was caught. And it was one of the great, uh, <laughs> you know, disgraces uh, of a media figure, of a of an international celebrity, uh, you know, in, in in decades. And it was it was our guy because after Willie Nelson uh, and after Stevie Vaughan. The next celebrity to blow up out of Austin was oddly uh, a guy that, that was a cyclist. And no one, you know, bicycles weren't that big. Bicycle racing wasn't that big. But this guy was so over-the-top great. Um, and, of course, he was storied because he'd come down with cancer, beat cancer, and then he wins all these Tour de France's, the premier bicycle race in the world. And he's ours. And so Austin being Austin, and, you know, even though it doesn't have a whole lot of history of cycling and all that, Austin immediately embraced Lance Armstrong and the idea of being an active rec athlete. Um, that kind of mirrored Austin. Austin has always been a great outdoors community. It hasn't been, you know, except for University of Texas, it's not much on professional or team sports. But things like cycling, running, I mean, this is uh, 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 the Ladybird Lake uh, Hike and Bike Trail is one of the busiest. Uh, 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 running trails uh, in the nation, and uh, Austin is a great running shoe test market. But so, you know, Lance Armstrong fit in very well when he blew up and started becoming a champion. He was the kind of guy that liked hanging out at Whole Foods Market, the original Whole Foods, for to get black bean tacos and and drink smoothies, which he never had smoothies before. And he loved hanging out in downtown at Liberty Lunch or or, uh, you know, uh, the Black Cat Lounge. He loved music. And so 
He wins a Tour de France, and he gets parade in Austin. He wins a second Tour de France, he gets another parade. And by the third Tour de France, he's like, no, this is, this is, you know, this ain't it. This is not cool. This is Austin. Let's, let's have some music. And through that simple request or desire, uh, there were producers hired. Uh, his managers basically found some young promoters, and um, and they and, and his Tour de France victories turned into these these massive concerts with over a hundred thousand people attending downtown Austin. I went on famously with Steve Miller, uh, the the rocker playing you know right in front of the Capitol in Congress Avenue being jammed. So this idea, hey, you know, yeah, I'm winning these races and. And I've got this business, and, and, you know, we know how to do concerts. Wouldn't it be cool to do a, a festival? And at this time, there was a festival called Lollapalooza that had started in Chicago and was traveling around at different cities, and it was kind of a touring festival. And, and you know, this idea of the promoters uh, that were behind uh, Lance's shows, Charlie Atal and uh, Charlie Jones, were – you know, we're thinking, let's let's do something. It'd be great to do a festival, but man, we, you know, we need some branding. We need some ID. And they came to the conclusion that the only way to do this festival right was to get a partnership with a well-known brand. And the best-known brand coming out of Austin at that time was Austin City Limits, the public broadcasting systems television series, which at that time even was the longest-running television show about music uh, going. Period. But it was also still doing kind of, you know, mixing up Nashville acts and Austin indie acts, and occasionally they'd do other stuff. Well, so Lance's people approached Austin City Limits, and the board of directors did not like this idea of, you know, doing a big festival in Zilker Park and, you know, whatever kind of acts they were going to bring in. This They thought they would ruin their brand and this image they've got as being, you know, the go-to country music uh, programming on television, but also Austin City Limits was losing money. Every year, they would always be scrambling for a sponsor, and they wouldn't even know if they had a, a season. They would always have to be hustling for money, and they were doing shows at the University of Texas in their communications building, Studio 5A. Uh, you know, it was, it was still going on. I'm sorry, I believe it was Studio 7A. Uh, it was going on, but internally, they were having problems, and so when Lance's people approached them, their first reaction was, no, 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 we're not going to do it. And Lance's people, you know, look, you know, we can, if you, we can use your name to sell our festival, we can invest in your program. And so basically, this trade-off allowed the first Austin City Limits Festival to be promoted. And Lance Armstrong was there to introduce uh, the bands. It was hands-on. And conversely, this festival, which by the third year was drawing 75,000 people a day, and uh, pretty soon they'd have to expand it, not just to one week, from one weekend, but they'd have to do two weekends. It became so successful that Austin City Limits was able to move downtown to the W Hotel, which is being built, to have their own theater, the Moody Theater, which is a performing uh, concert venue as well as a television studio and to expand their vision 
The same producer has produced Austin City Limits since 1978, Terry Lacona. And so he's been responsible for a lot of that Nashville City Limits programming that uh, uh, ACL underwent in the 80s and 90s. But Terry also, once they got the infusion of uh, financial support from Lance Armstrong's people, expanded the vision of Austin City Limits. And it became not just... uh, country oriented but all kinds of music and it integrated you know hip-hop became a thing even though austin was not has never been known as a hip-hop city and it was basically national acts and then international acts so basically if if you want to get on tv and you're a music act you know yeah it's great to be on a late night talk show or somewhere like that but the go-to uh the most desirable programming is Austin City Limits, because they still do what they've always done. It's not a lot of fancy camera work. It's pretty static. It focuses on the band, on the musicians playing their instruments, and that's about it. And musicians consider this to be the most prestigious outlet on television. And let's hear... I want to I want to play something that's kind of the I think the epitome of the mountain coming to Muhammad as far as the ACL Fest. This is the Rolling Stones uh, in Zilka Park 2005 at ACL Fest singing Bob Wills is still the king. Texas natural second home Where you tip your hat to the ladies and the rose of San Antonio And now it's Mick Jagger singing Waylon Jennings' famous anthem to Austin, Bob Wills is Still the King. I mean, that was some moment, I think, as an Austinite, uh, seeing the Rolling Stones come to town and cover one of our favorite songs. That, that to me, was kind of the apex of Austin as the massive media happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, is, is to do a, a Bob Wills song. Look, Stones have always had a soft place in their heart for country music and i think of uh, far away eyes or uh uh wild horses couldn't drag me away and that's always been forever thus so for them to do pull out that song no one would have expected it and i'll be honest with you probably i'd say a good chunk of the crowd had no idea uh that that was a Wayland song much less who bob wills ever was that's so true <laughs> but maybe they went home and googled or maybe even googled it on their phones right there uh, at ACL, but you had ACL blow up, but also you still had some acts coming out of the Austin scene uh, in the '90s and 2000s that made their mark. I'm thinking in particular of Fastball and Spoon. Yeah, there was a whole Nate. I'm I'm going to call you on it, and you're going to have to do some editing here. But I need to point out that the Rolling Stones did not play. They played Zilker Park. The Rolling Stones did not play ACL Fest. All right, I'll, I can I can I can sit with that correction. In the '90s and, and into the aughts, uh, there was a whole another wave of of rock music that kind of popped up out of Austin, and I think probably most famously uh, is the band Spoon, who I love the fact that Britt Daniel and Jim Eno 
uh, from Spoon both came out of technology. Uh, Britt Daniel worked at Motorola. I'm trying to remember where uh, uh, Jim Eno worked. But, you know, these guys came to Austin uh, because of the technology, but they were music cats. And so they used technology as kind of their, you know, they paid the bills so they could start this band Spoon that became probably the most uh, iconic Austin rock band uh, of the 90s into the into the 20 teens. Uh, the most, the uh, another band, Fastball, was became you know established some kind of notoriety mainly because they had a hit single and it was a great single called The Way which uh, was based on a newspaper clipping about a couple that had Alzheimer's and were lost uh, and they couldn't find their way home. And they took that and basically toured the world with it. I mean, they had, they had a couple other singles that were mildly successful. Their album sales were never that, but Fastball did have, you know, punched through with with some pop hits, much like uh, Sean Colvin did. Sean Colvin had pop hits that were, you know, chart singles. And Austin has never been in much of a singles town, even going back to the, you know, 80s and 70s, probably, you know, one of the most successful acts to come out of Austin was a cover band that played, you know, uh, covers a, a popular song uh, uh, called Christopher Cross and, uh, you know, had a big, huge hit with uh, uh, Sailing and Ride, Ride Like the Wind. But that had little to do with Austin. It was a, it was a bunch of technical musicians that put together a pop song uh, and basically made it big out in LA. That didn't have a lot to do. It, it, it was not informed by Austin's scene or, or the, the core of the music community, other than the fact that they, Christopher Cross, Fastball, and Spoon all honed their chops in the clubs. That's where they learned how to play. And Austin doesn't mind taking a little retroactive credit for the yacht rock, yacht rock shine that's uh, uh, come to accrue to Christopher Cross in retrospect. Although at the time, he was an absolute critical pariah. Well, you know, Chris Christopher Gepard is actually a pretty nice guy, but uh, you know, when you're just saying this is this is the one of the touchstones of the revival of yacht rock, all I can say is enough said. This is like. You know, he made top music for people that wear topsiders. You know, <laughs> sailing. Uh, it's just, that ain't awesome. I mean, not to say people don't have sailboats or do things like that, but that's so bourgeois and so non-roots rocky. It has nothing to do with Americana music. <laughs> so it, and, and in a way, you can make that argument. I mean, fastball came out of the clubs and were kind of like a residual uh, uh, band from the New Sincerity mo movement, and Spoon to me were completely, you know, they were more original. But it's also important to note that as soon as Spoon blows up, their lead singer Rick Daniel leaves Austin, and he's lived most of the past twenty years in Portland. So <laughs> I don't know what you say there. I mean, yeah, they're an Austin band. Jim, you know, is a great producer and produced a lot of Austin acts. But um, you know, is that Austin? I don't know. I get in arguments with. Uh, Michael Corcoran, the uh, music critic who's a big champion of Spoon about that. And, you know, to me, the significance is more like, you know, as far as localism, uh, that might have ended with uh, the Butthole Surfers, but it, it persists today with, you know, bands like Shiny Ribs, to me, is like so totally Austin, kind of as a continuum of, of uh, the Sir Douglas legacy. 
you've got all kinds of, you know, the 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 retro country and roots music that, that blew up at, at the White Horse, uh, and the bands that have come out of there have been significant. The Scoot In, which was a totally crashed out, you know, it was a wino drunks fall down joint back in the seventies, where DG Burrow and Maggie Lou played country music in front of like five, you know, day drinkers. That was a scoot in and, and now it's like a shiny club with touring acts. Go figure. I don't know. But all I all I know is the scene has managed to persist. Uh it's still here. I think it's 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 now, I mean, for someone of my age and inclination in history, I love the fact that there's a joint like Sam's Town Point, which is in an old house in kind of a, a suburban neighborhood in far south Austin. And it's got the same vibe as Soap Creek Saloon did in the 1970s. You walk in and you feel like you're part of a club. And you've got, you know, Ramsey Midwood, the owner, is a great, you know, singer-songwriter, very wry lyricist. But, you know, he has all kinds of cool bands. And Jesse Leger, who's this Cajun accordionist, he's hanging around there with, with there's another Cajun accordionist in Austin, Charles Ray Thibodeau, who's from, from Beaumont down in southeast Texas. His band plays some of the most authentic Cajun music you will hear anywhere, including in Lafayette or, or New Iberia or Opelousas, Louisiana. And he happens to live in Austin. And that's Austin today. It's like Robert Plant moving here for a few years because he's dating Patty Griffin and they're living together. And it's, you know, it's a kind of town he can live in. Um, I'm thinking of the, 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 Oh, oh the, the drummer for King Crimson lives out here in Wembley. Ray Wiley Hubbard's kind of a retiree. He lives a, a gritty little life. It's, it's, that's become Austin music for me today. The people that have managed to carve out careers and do it kind of out of the spotlight, but do it on their own terms. And that's kind of the critical element. They're still doing it because they want to be creatives and they really don't give a shit whether they can get rich or not. Getting rich is great if it happens. But, you know, if you're not Jimmy Vaughn and kind of, you know, who is now the living legend of blues, uh, if you're not Jimmy Vaughn, well, maybe you're Gary Clark Jr. So Gary Clark Jr. is probably one of the best-known electric guitarists in the world. He comes out of Boston. He was raised in the Austin, in the Anton's blues scene. So, you know, Austin's still popping. Uh, it's harder to... Be an up-and-coming artist if if you want to get your foot in the door and to develop some chops. You have to go. You have to be more creative. You have to hold down more jobs, and you have to find those venues that are, you know, welcoming to new music that will give you a break and let you play if you can bring a crowd. So there's still the Continental Club, there's still Sahara Lounge, and there's new venues popping up. So I'm I'm guardedly optimistic, despite what the lack of affordability and the COVID have done. Uh, to this community because we are a community and we're about personal interaction and a pandemic makes that very difficult. Let's hear one last song. And then uh, you got a quote here towards the end of the book. I want to get you to want to bounce off of you, but let's hear Alejandro Escobedo one more time. Take me in and hold me tight and wrap a dream around my head. I tumble out of bed just one more time 
just one more time. And that was Alejandro Escobedo doing One More Time. And he's just the epitome of what you're talking about. He's an artist who came from San Francisco originally with some punk bands, came out to Austin with a group called the True Believers, no, with Rank and File, and then formed a group called the True Believers that was a big part of the New Sincerity Movement. And then he emerged as a solo artist in the 90s and has one, had one of these careers where he's, he's never moved massive units, but he's had massive respect. He's done the major talk shows you know, the late night shows and, and become a national figure with total critical respectability and a great career without ever really having to sell out or leave town other than touring. But there's a quote you've got towards the end of the book that said, without much oversight or grand vision, as cool built upon cool built upon cool, it eventually grew into a commodity unto itself and money did become the object. Austin was a great place to live, to go to school, to retire, to be an entrepreneur if you could afford it, the old and new versions clash. So you've kind of jumped ahead on that, but so you're guardedly optimistic that the that the old fire can keep burning even in this mammon era. The first time I saw Alejandro Escobedo was when he was with Rank and File, and it was in 1984 at the Student Union at the University of Texas. Uh, I was managing Joe King Carrasco and the Crowns, who were headlining the show, and the middle bill was a band called Los Lobos playing their very first gig in Texas. I had met Los Lobos at a gig in uh, in Los Angeles uh, at the Cafe de Grand and encouraged them to come to Texas and play, and they did. And the op- and opening up for Los Lobos and Joe King were rank and file. And Alejandro caught my eye then. And in 1985, I was approached by the True Believers, the band that Alejandro had started with his brother Javier Escobedo and uh, with John D. Graham, who had come out of the skunks and the punk scene uh, in Austin, and um, asked me to manage it. And I was managing Joe King, but I was kind of getting out of that because Joe King's organ player uh, had been my girlfriend and then became my wife. And then Chris Cummings got pregnant. And so she she left the band and I, I gave up managing Joe King shortly thereafter. But I took on True Believers, and the idea was, you know, this, they're 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 roots rock, and uh, and you know this this new sincerity sound. I don't know about that, but they had three three guitars, and they were like, as Daniel Johnston later declared them, the marching guitar army of Austin. They were a great band. They should have been Guns and Roses, and it didn't happen for a variety of circumstances, but. Um, when the band fell apart in 1987-88 after losing a deal the record label had, uh, had merged with another label and they got dropped just as they finished their second album and I gotta say look they were opening shows for Tom Petty they were opening shows for Los Lobos they were getting a lot of buzz nationally they were playing arenas um, and they could have been somebody but EMI which was their parent label had merged with another label and all these acts got dropped and that's when I left the band uh, as a manager. We had a disagreement about what to do with the record. And shortly afterwards, Alejandro reinvented himself as a solo act. And he has reinvented himself ever since, album by album. And he really is a lot of the heart and soul of what Austin is. Uh, he makes music because he's compelled to make music. He's been marginally successful commercially. Although people, everyone from REM 
Peter Buck, uh, you know, takes him out on the road. Uh, Al's uh, shared the stage with Bruce Springsteen. He's seen it all. I mean, you know, he's, he's been with them all. Uh, he got to play with John Cale and, uh, and record with him. Um, you know, he's been to the mountaintop, and yet he persists. And that's kind of the story of the Austin music scene. If you want to look about and see what Austin, where is Austin music today, look at Alejandro Escobedo, who should have been dead several times with, with hep C, with all kinds of ailments. And a community brought him back, basically saved him several times to get him the right kind of medical treatment, to get him housed. And where I wrote in my book, Alejandro moved away to Dallas, which was true when I wrote the book. Uh, he's moved back and he lives out on a ranch uh, outside of Driftwood. And he's biding his time, but he's, he's been doing work with uh, the author, John Philip Santos. Uh, he's done a lot of creative stuff, uh, and the wheels are continuing to turn. And that's Austin. It may be not as affordable as it once was. It may not be, if you've been around for 40 or 50 years like I have, it may be missing some groovy elements. But the people that are still coming are coming for the wrong and right reasons. It's because this is a place where I can work out my ideas. The people that are coming for jobs, they're not the people that are going to gonna add to Austin's reputation or embellish the creative community. It's the people that come in spite of the ability, in spite of money, to work out their ideas. That's Austin. And as long as those people keep coming, I think we're going to be okay. When they get overwhelmed and outnumbered by all the people that are coming just because this is a great place to make money, well, then Austin becomes Dallas or Houston or anywhere USA. But as long as that creative core remains, just like as long as the Continental Club is still open, as long as there's a Barton Springs, as long as there's cheap beer and cheap pot, or relatively inexpensive pot, Austin's going to be okay. All right. Well, Joe Nick, thanks so much for telling us about it. This is Joe Nick Potosky, and the book is Austin to ATX, The Hippies, Pickers, Slackers, and Geeks Who Transformed the Capital of Texas. Thanks again, Joe Nick. Anytime, Nate. My pleasure. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Brad Talinsky to talk about his book, Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Austin to ATX, the hippies, pickers, slackers, and geeks who transformed the capital of Texas, is published by Texas A&M University Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.